Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put it in the fire, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. We are familiar with the story of Nadab and Abihu, and we visited it a few months ago. And we remember that they went in before the Lord, not considering what God had told them to do or how He ought to be worshipped, but attempting to worship God in their own way, by their own designs. Indeed, they even went into the Holy of Holies, that throne room of God's tabernacle palace, while drunk. And so, God reminded them of His infinite holiness and of the fact that sinfulness cannot enter into His presence. Thus, they were consumed. This raises that question. All of the Israelites were sinful like Nadab and Abihu. And yet, the whole people of Israel lived in the presence of the Lord. Now, now they weren't in the Holy of Holies where God's presence was was localized and and most um, concentrated. But they did have the, the tabernacle of the Lord at the center of their camp. And so the question comes, that question that hangs over the book of Leviticus, how can an unholy people live in the presence of an unholy God? And the answer is through the sacrificial system. It's how the book opens, and and we are introduced to this sacrificial system, and the, the first half of the book of Leviticus is telling us how people can live in the presence of a holy God. It's all about God's holiness. And then the second half of the book, from chapter 16, 17-ish onward, is all about how to live as God's holy people. And what we have here in Leviticus 23 are a number of festivals and holy days, times that the people are to take to remember God's holiness. And we come today to the Day of Atonement. This is the second of three fall festivals that would happen in the same month. And so last week we considered the Festival of Trumpets. Remember those trumpets would call out. It would remind the people of the law being received at Sinai, of the great victories that they had as they entered into the promised land. And the trumpets on this particular month would remind the people this was a most holy month. And they would prepare themselves for this day of atonement. And indeed, it is the day of atonement that is at the very center of the book of Leviticus in chapter 16. Because atonement is at the very heart of this book. The book of Leviticus says far more than the rest of the Bible does about atonement. The word shows up over and over and over again. And so we have asked throughout our time in the book, and we'll ask again this morning, what exactly is atonement? What does it mean? Why is it necessary? Atonement comes from the word 
Kippur. You've probably heard Kippur before. Yom Kippur. Yom is Hebrew for day. Kippur is Hebrew for atonement. Thus, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. What this word Kippur means is, is varied. It has different shades of meaning. Forgiveness, cleansing, ransoming, or averting the wrath of God. All of these kind of shades of meaning are applied in different ways throughout the book of Leviticus. And as it relates to the the Day of Atonement, what we are to see is this picture of kind of a, a ransom purification. God's people are, by way of their faith in a substitute, being purchased or ransomed out of God's wrath, and they are being purified or cleansed of their sin. It's a really wonderful picture. But maybe more simply, we can just say that atonement is about the removal of sin. Atonement for sin is necessary for the relationship between God and His people to be a peaceful one. And so, uh, since it is the day of atonement, and atonement is central to what we are going to talk about this morning, I I thought our main idea might, might go something like this. Atonement for sin is a prerequisite for atonement with God. Now, now that's a little cheesy, but I think it'll help you remember. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a phrase you can put in your pocket and pull out months from now when you're thinking about atonement or what it means for Christ to die for you. Because what happens in the atonement is that God and those who have repented of their sin are made to be one. They're two parties that are at odds, that are subsequently reconciled through that work of a sacrifice. Atonement for sin is a prerequisite for at-one-ment with God. Why, why does atonement have to involve blood and sacrifice? In Leviticus 17.11 clears that up for us. Remember, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Thus we read in Hebrews 9 earlier together that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, God's people cannot be made clean. So we see on this day of atonement, God is cleansing his people. Atonement is being made. And I want to exhort you this morning to remember the seriousness of sin, repent of sin, and to confess sin. We'll work through uh, what has been our paradigm in Leviticus 23. We'll talk about the festival's details, the festival's purpose, and the festival's lessons. Let's pray and begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together. Pray that you would help us to value it. We thank you that on this Sunday we get to come together to hear your word proclaimed, to encourage one another on towards love and good deeds 
We pray that we would come to know you more. Not with just a theoretical knowledge, but with a deeply personal knowledge. Pray that our affections would be enlarged. That you would cause our hearts to spring forth with joy and a fountain of love for you. You've been so good to us, God. I pray that, that you help us to see what it cost for you to reconcile us to yourself. Pray that you would help us to see your commitment to loving your people, your commitment to loving all who confess Jesus as Lord and follow him. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So look with me quickly at Leviticus chapter 23. We are up to verse 26 in the Day of Atonement. Again, second of three fall festivals. We already covered the first three spring festivals. So uh, just by way of review, the chapter starts out. We talk about uh, the normal pattern for rest and remembering in the life of the Israelites, the weekly Sabbath. Then we turned our attention to the Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Next, we saw the Feast of the Harvest. Then we saw the Feast of the First Fruits. Sorry, First Fruits, then the Feast of the Harvest. And then we went into the Fall Festivals. So Feast of the Trumpets, and now Feast of the Day of the Lord. Verse 26. The Lord again spoke to Moses. The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. You are to hold a sacred assembly and to practice self-denial. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord. On this particular day, you are not to do any work because it is a day of atonement to make atonement for yourselves before the Lord your God. If any person does not practice self-denial on this particular day, he is to be cut off from his people. I will destroy among his people anyone who does any work on this same day. You are not to do any work. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations wherever you live. It will be a Sabbath of complete rest for you. And you must practice self-denial. You are to observe your Sabbath from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening. Moses assumes that we are familiar with most of the details of the Day of Atonement since he wrote them in chapter 16. And so now he is just giving a quick refresher and telling the people that they have to celebrate this day at a particular time in the year and that they must not neglect it. And so he brings attention primarily to just four things, right? He says, we want to honor the day by actually celebrating it and observing it, keeping it. You're going to gather together for a sacred assembly. You must not do any work. It's a day of complete rest. You must humble yourselves or deny yourselves. Some of your translations will say, afflict yourselves. This is to be an outward symbol of their inward repentance on the Day of Atonement. The sacrifices will not be worth anything if the hearts of the people are not inclined towards their God. And then lastly, we, we see this kind of emphasis on if you don't celebrate the day, there is punishment coming. 
So when, we, uh, when the people would observe the day, when they would keep it, they would enjoy all the benefits of relationship with God. That This day would be a, a day of, of serious joy. It would be solemn as the people recognized their sins, repented of their sins, confessed their sins, and it would be a day of joy as they watched their sins being purified and cleansed, watched their sins walking out away from the camp in the form of a scapegoat. On the other hand, ignoring this day would be to reject God's provision for sin. It would be a denial of God's kingship and even of one's own sinfulness or one's need to be forgiven. And thus, the punishment was grave. Punishment for ignoring this day is to be cut off from the people. I mean, God says in verse 30, I will destroy among His people anyone who does any work on this same day. To ignore God's instruction on this day was to commit a sin in the same manner as Nadab in Abihu. It was to de-God God. It was to treat God as if He were not holy. I mean, treating God as if He is not the holy King of the universe is at the core of sin itself. I mean, that, that, that's what sin says. It says, uh, you, you might be God, but I'm not going to do what you say. I'm happy living my life my way. I, I don't need your word, thank you. In fact, I, I don't even need to, it's, I can live my life as if you don't exist. I mean, this is what sin says. And all sin must be punished. Sin is the reason that atonement is required. Adam's sin and our sins put us at odds with God. Indeed, unless God does a miracle in our lives when we hear the gospel and believe in Christ, we will not live at peace with Him. We will stay dead in our sins, in love with our sins, and our end will be ruined. Sin is why atonement is required. And there's, there's nothing that anyone can do to reconcile themselves to God. None of us can atone for our sins. We need simply the mercy of God and to trust in God's provision. This is something that is demonstrated brightly on the Day of Atonement, especially in the clothing that, that Aaron wears. And so this is a, on one day of the year, right? The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. And remember, God's tabernacle is set off with different sections, and the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, well, the holier that space is, the more dangerous it gets. God's holiness is good, but it's dangerous to a sinful people. And so 
the tabernacle, it's, it's like God's palace is a good way to think about it. And the Holy of Holies is God's throne room. One simply does not just enter into a throne room whenever they want. And so Leviticus 16 actually opens and it tells us, you're not to come into my throne room whenever you want like Nadab and Abihu tried. But you're to come in once a year. And when you come, you must come with blood to make atonement for yourself and then for the people. And then Aaron is given this instruction when he's told to carry out. He's got a list of things he's going to do on the Day of Atonement, what it looks like in chapter 16. This is what Aaron's supposed to do in verse 4. He is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. Now, now remember, the clothing of the high priest is made of the finest and rarest of fabrics. It's got purples and blues, and they're held together by threads that are laced with gold. The priest would, would have a turban that had a gold plate on the front of it. It had that piece of judgment with 12 precious and luminous stones. It was really a quite exquisite and fantastic and opulent garment. And yet that's not what he wears on the Day of Atonement to go into the presence of the Lord. But what he wears to go into the presence of the Lord on the Day of Atonement is tantamount to sweatpants or a bedsheet. And so we, we scratch our chins and we say, well, what's, what's going on here? Isn't it disrespectful to go into the presence of God like that? Shouldn't he be dressed in his Sunday best? Well, no. You see, Aaron goes in like that because he is representing the people before God. It's a symbol of humility, of dependence, and of need. He's going before God without any um, status or emblem of office. He's going before God with, with no authority. He goes before God completely dependent upon the blood of the purification offering. He goes before God completely dependent on the substitute. And he goes before God asking for mercy. Understanding there's nothing that he can do to procure forgiveness for his own sins. Nothing he can do to achieve forgiveness for the people. So he goes humbly. I mean, the image really is striking. When Aaron speaks to the people for God, he wears the robes of the high priest. Looks brilliant. And yet when he speaks to God for the people, he wears simple, unadorned linen. People are dependent on God. So he goes in on the Day of Atonement. He wears these linen garments. He makes a sacrifice for himself, goes into the Holy of Holies and splashes blood on and before the altar, purifying it, cleaning it, making atonement for himself. He then comes out and takes one of the goats that are designated to the people. They, they selected two. He takes 
that first goat and he slaughters it as a purification offering and he takes its blood into the Holy of Holies and he splashes it on and before the altar seven times, just like he did for himself to to show the thoroughness of this cleaning, the thoroughness of this purification. And so he makes atonement for his sin and then after he's made atonement for his sin, he makes atonement for the people's sins. And then in the process of this, we recognize that there is atonement being made for the actual tabernacle itself. In Leviticus, remember, sin doesn't just infect people. It pollutes the environment. It can make things clean or unclean. And so the sins of the people, the image we get, is that the sins of the people have actually spread out and crept into, over the course of the year, the Lord's palace. The Lord's own things are tainted with sin so that they need cleaned and purified with blood. And that seems really weird to us, but maybe you can think of it this way. Uh, and I think I used this image last time that I, I talked about the Day of Atonement. And ironically, Chelsea was not here then either. So one of the things that we, we do in our house that is, is disgusting uh, is we don't often clean our microwave. And we don't often cover the food that goes into the microwave. And so what happens when you put food in the microwave and you heat it up and you don't cover it is it, it you know, pop, 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 pop. It splatters all over the place. And when you don't clean it, what happens over the course of a year <laughs> or however long it goes between cleanings is that food pollution accumulates in there and it is disgusting. And so similarly, what, what we have here is that the sins of the people are accumulating in God's palace, on the altar. And those sins need atoned for or cleansed. We, we, we see it in verse 20 just before the scapegoat ceremony. We read, When he, that's the high priest, that's Aaron, has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar. And so he's, he's making atonement for God's things. That is, he's cleansing them. He's purifying them. After he's done this, it's, he's on to the next step. So, so step one of the Day of the Atonement, if we're going to talk about these kind of atoning acts, the first thing that he is going to do is clean the Lord's house from the defilement that's caused from the sins of the people. He's going to make atonement for himself, for the people, and for the Lord's palace. He's cleaning it. The second atonement ritual comes here with, with the scapegoat in verse 21. After he's finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Aaron will lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts. All their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land, and the man will release it there. In later times, the Mishnah records that the goat was led to a steep cliff and subsequently pushed off backwards in order to kill it. They made sure that this goat would die, this burden-bearing goat, the goat that would carry the sins of the people, was killed. Sometimes when we, we come to the, the Day of Atonement, we consider the two goats, 
think we feel bad for the scape or for the, the goat that dies as the purification offering. So we think like the scapegoat gets to live, it just gets sent outside the camp. That's not true. It dies. Both goats die because the wages of sin is death. And only the shedding of blood can bring atonement. Substitutionary atonement is at the very heart of the day of atonement. It's at the very heart of the gospel. Lastly, Aaron enters the tent. He changes out of his linen garments. He, he, puts on, he takes a bath. He puts on his high priestly garments and he goes and makes an offering for atonement, the burnt offering, and that underscores all the atonement that's being made, both for himself and for the people. Then we have some instructions about uh, how to clean up. The, the carcasses of the animals that are to be taken outside of the camp and burned. The man who released the goat is to go through a ritually cleansing process. And so just in sum, that the details of the Day of Atonement really involve three primary atoning rituals. Purification offerings, where the Lord's house is cleaned. The scapegoat, wherein uh, the lethal burden of the people's sins is placed upon the goat and is sent out, carrying the people's sins far away from them, never to be seen again. And then thirdly, the burnt offering, which would underscore the atonement which is being made. So those are the details. And we ask, well, what is the purpose? It's pretty evident at this point. Atonement for sin is the purpose. Reconciliation between God and his people is the purpose. This is the way that God has made for his people to live in his holy presence. The purpose is stated explicitly in verse 30 of chapter 16. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all of your sins before the Lord. It's restated a little differently in verse 28 of chapter 23. On this particular day, you're not to do any work because or for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for yourselves before the Lord your God. Those who observe the day according to the Lord's commands can be assured that he would cleanse and forgive them so that they could enjoy fellowship with him. Listen, the holy God who is offended by sin is the compassionate and gracious God who delights to cleanse and forgive sin. Dane Ortland writes about God's heart to forgive in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen, would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanliness of his mind and heart. The simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. And what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was Jesus' first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved towards them. 
pity flooded his heart. The longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. King Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came so that we might be at one with Him, at peace with God. Atonement is about at one minute. Jesus comes as the perfect and eternal high priest. He doesn't need to make atonement for himself because he's sinless. He comes to make atonement for us. Jesus comes as the purification offering. His blood cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. Indeed, Jesus comes to die on the true day of atonement, Good Friday. He comes to die as our burden bearer, as our scapegoat, as all of our sins are put upon Him. And He absorbs the wrath of the Father in our place. It is only through Jesus that true atonement is accomplished. The day of atonement was in anticipation of the reality that was to come in Christ. It was a shadow. The cross work of Jesus is the substance. The day of atonement is is like the light of the moon. Drawing our attention to the sun. It reflected a reality far greater than itself. Only through Christ can we have our sins cleansed, forgiven. Only through Christ can we be ransomed from the wrath that we deserve. And listen, the gospel gives us more than just the day of atonement. It's not as if God just wipes the slate clean and says you're forgiven of your sins and now you're going to sin some more and we're going to need to to have another sacrifice offered next year. That's what happened in Israel, right? Day of atonement uh, happened, sins were forgiven, and then the clock started ticking. And so you might try really, really hard to to stay pure and, and try really, really hard to do good things and to honor God in each and every aspect of your life and, and try to just not sin. You wanted to maintain that relationship with God, but what inevitably happened is that you would sin. And then the, the, eventually the day of atonement would roll around again. You would have your sins forgiven. It was like the, the clock started ticking. But that's not what happens in the gospel. Jesus dies once for all. The sacrifice doesn't need repeated. He dies for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We're forgiven. And he gives to us his own righteousness. We put our faith in Christ, we're credited with his righteousness. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we are not only acquitted of our sins, we are accounted as righteous. So not only do you get out of 
knowing God as judge. You get into knowing God as father. What this means is that you don't have to get on this treadmill of maintaining your relationship with God. Well, I really need to be good all the time or God's going to be really disappointed in me. Oh no, I, I sinned again. God is really angry with me. I'm, I'm causing God pain. It's not. Jesus isn't being re-sacrificed for your sins. No, all of your sins have been dealt with on the cross. And all of Christ's righteousness has been given to you by faith. It's been credited to your account. He that knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that means that God is not disappointed with you. He's not angry at you. If you are in Christ, Jesus, Jesus isn't giving you the cold shoulder. He's not standing across the room shaking his head at you. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary or easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. He's the most approachable person in the cosmos. The posture most natural to Jesus is not pursed lips and a pointed finger, but open arms. Jesus welcomes any who are repenting and putting their faith in him. Whether for the first time if you're a non-Christian, I implore you to come to Jesus. His arms are open. Or for the 500,000th time, if you are a Christian, I encourage you to come to Jesus. His arms are open. It is a foolish thing for us to think that God is somehow super disappointed in us or angry at us when we sin. Our relationship with God, our standing with God, is not contingent on our performance. It's based on His grace to us in Christ. And that means that He loves us just as much on our worst day as He does on our best day. This is such a relief. This is good news. Christian, don't fall into the trap of trying to earn God's smile. In Christ, you already have it. You don't have to try to maintain God's love for you with your performance. His love never wavers. It doesn't ebb and flow. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ is intransigent. I should have chosen a better word there. It's intransigent, uncompromising, unbending. It does not move. If you are in Jesus, you can never be separated from the love of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That means is that God's love for you will shrink when the sun rises in the west. God's love for you will fade when the earth orbits around the moon. God's love for you will weaken when Jesus goes back into the grave. 
In other words, nothing in all of creation is as certain and secure as you are in Christ. There is nothing in your life, if you are in Christ, as certain as God's love for you. It's because Christ has taken the punishment for your sin and given to you His righteousness. It's, it's incredible news that when Christ makes atonement for us, not only are our sins acquitted, but His righteousness is accounted to us. God's heart is to save sinners. That's what the Day of Atonement is about. Bringing people that have no business in His presence. Bringing people who are treasonous. Bringing people who have been in rebellion into His presence. Into His family. This is what God does for us in the gospel. It's adoption through propitiation. Adoption through sacrificial atonement. It's this good news that compels us to pursue God. Compels us to learn some lessons from the day of atonement. Such as remembering the seriousness of sin. We must not treat sin casually or flippantly. We must search it out in our hearts. When was the last time you sat down, reflected, and tried to unearth sins that might be living in those unswept corners of your soul? When was the last time you discovered sin in yourself? You should remember the seriousness of sin unearth it in ourselves so that we might repent of it quickly because sin kills. Remember the seriousness of sin and repent of sin. The, the Day of Atonement rituals would not have meant anything if the people were not repentant. That, that's why in, in 23, it's in 16.2, but you see over and over again this emphasis on Denying themselves, self-denial, afflicting, or being humble. Again, these are outward signs of inward repentance. If the posture of the people's hearts is not inclined towards God, the sacrifices for them will not mean much. And likewise, if you are not truly repentant and following Christ, then the gospel and his death on the cross will not mean very much to you. One of the, the primary differences between a Christian and a non-Christian is repentance. The Christian says, I see that I have sinned against God. Turns from that sin and says, I need you, Jesus. And the non-Christian says, I see my sin and I don't need Jesus. I don't need to repent of it. And sometimes Christians get this weird idea that, that they can hold on to sin with one arm and hold on to Jesus with the other. And that it's just not true. You can't hold on to your sin and Jesus at the same time. If we are Christians, when we recognize sin in our lives, we will repent. And if we do not, one of two things has to be true. We are deeply caught in sin and we are, are wayward. Or 
we have deceived ourselves and we do not know Christ at all. At best, we have strayed far away from our Lord and Savior. And at worst, we have revealed ourselves to be apostate. Christians cannot make peace with sin. And if you do, eventually your sin will find you out. You may hear, depart from me, I never knew you. You may end up like Judas. Judas's life should serve as a warning for us. Judas walked with Jesus for many years. He heard every sermon. He saw every miracle. And he harbored a secret sin. And eventually, found him out. Judas betrayed Jesus to try to accomplish his own will. He betrayed Jesus for some silver. You know, so many of us, when we think of sin, think it will be explicit and overt so that when we see sin in our lives, we'll go, oh, yuck, I don't want that. But here's the thing. Sin does not typically present itself to us at the front end as a betrayal of Jesus. Subtle. Satan and demons, what they like to do is take God's good gifts and just to slowly help us shape those good gifts into idols that we worship. Things that take our attention and our love and affections away from the Lord our God like to lull us to sleep so that we don't recognize that we're in any danger. It's a little bit like the, the show when animals attack. <laughs> You've ever seen this? Uh, where people will have a wild animal that they should never have and they've domesticated it typically and they're like, you know, this is my lion and I've had him since he was a little cub and man, I love this lion. I've fed it. He's grown big and we, we just live together. We, we're buddies And then eventually, the show's title proves itself true, right? Like they've got the the lion on a walk or something, you know, like sees a squirrel, I don't know. And then it attacks. And they end up, you know, dead usually, or just really scarred and beat up. I can't believe this happened. What do you mean? There's a lion. It's it's a killing machine. I was like, I've got my domesticated shark here. I'm going to go swimming with it bear. No, if you, if you try to domesticate those things, eventually they're going to turn on you. Likewise, your sin. You might think, my sin and I, we're, we're comfortable. It's not that big of a deal. But eventually, it's going to turn on you and consume you. Don't get comfortable with it. To get comfortable with sin is like it's like not changing the oil in a vehicle. Right? It's not a big deal. I don't nobody sees it. And then all of a sudden, the cars broke down. We must recognize our sin, remember the seriousness of sin and quickly turn from it and repent of it in return to those wide open arms of Christ who loves us without fail. And lastly, I want to point out 
the value of confession. I think the aspect of the Day of Atonement that most arrests our attention is that scapegoat ritual. The scapegoat is taken out, the hands of the priests are put on it, and the sins of the people are confessed. Can can you imagine being there? You've stood around all day, you've been fasting most likely, you've humbled yourself, everybody, thousands of people, all day all you've heard is the bleeding of animals as they've been killed. You've seen the sight of blood, smell the sacrifices. And then the priest comes with that scapegoat and puts his hands on its head. Begins confessing all the sins of the people. And once he's done, that scapegoat is is taken out from the camp where you watch it disappear over the horizon. I mean, it would have been thrilling as God gave a visual of what it means to have your sins forgiven. That he separates them from you as far as the east is from the west. That he, he removes them so that they never need to be brought up again. That's a powerful picture. And I think there, it shows to us the value of confession. Confessing our sins. Not just in private to the Lord, but to one another. This is a command the New Testament enjoins on us. James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Or 1 John 1, 7-9, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When was the last time you confessed your sin to someone? I want to challenge you to find someone you can trust to confess your sins to them. We should be a people who are comfortable with encouraging one another on towards good deeds and love. A people who are used to being asked questions like, how are you doing spiritually? Where are you struggling? And we should be a people that are used to answering those questions and saying, I confess I really struggled with anger this week. I confess I was was worried I need the gospel. I need Jesus. Will you you pray for me? I'm struggling to trust the Lord in the midst of my suffering. Confess your sins to one another. We confess our sins to one another because in this we bear one another's burdens. We help one another on towards Christ's likeness. We confess our sins because in confessing them, we make it much harder for them to thrive. Confessing your sins is like taking a weed up by the root. Sin often shrivels when it's exposed to the light. We confess our sins to remind ourselves of the glorious salvation we have in our burden bearer, in Christ Jesus our scapegoat. So let our song of confession be 
In the words of Philip Bliss, guilty, violent, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Atonement is about at one minute with God. Jesus Christ has accomplished this for all who put their faith in him. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can know you as Father rather than as Judge because Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. We thank you that in him we have been acquitted of our sins and accounted as righteous. We thank you that in him you say to us, you are my precious child. Never will I leave you or forsake you. This is my son or my daughter with whom I am well pleased. We thank you that we have peace with you and with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.